If you're looking to buy or sell pre-IPO stock, SharesPost has a solution for you. Since 2009, SharesPost has transacted more than $4 billion in the top private tech companies. Proven, trustworthy, secure. Visit us at SharesPost.com. Coming up on Equity, a crypto-ish, fintech-ish company raises $110 million. New Enterprise Associates is doing some weird secondary jujitsu. Pluralsight has a blockbuster IPO, and SoftBank's Vision Fund is already starting on Vision Fund 2.0. Welcome to Equity. I'm TechCrunch's Matthew Lindley, joined by TechCrunch Silicon Valley editor Connie Loizos. Hello. Crunchbase News Editor-in-Chief Alex Wilhelm. Hello. And today we have our special guest is Samil Shah, who's a venture partner at Lightspeed Venture Partners and founder of Haystack and also ex-TechCrunch columnist. Yes. Thank you for joining us. Great to see everybody. I feel like that's the best pedigree we've had yet on the show because you, <laughs> you, like, you and I are both ex-family members here at TC. And we're so glad you're gone. Yeah, I know. It is, it is a dramatic Well, at least episode. Alex specifically. He's gone off to start a plan. It's venture-backed. Um, yeah. yeah, it's taking over <laughs> the world You say now. that venture like it's a bad thing to the VC. Well, we're going <laughs> to rename it Venture-Backed Editor-in-Chief. Um, okay, <laughs> anyway, so, so crypto, a crypto thing happened today. What happened today? Yeah, okay, so Circle, which is a company that I think we've all heard of by now, but no one really remembers what it does, uh, raised $110 million at what CNBC claims is a $3 billion valuation. Uh, this brings their total capital raised to 2 246, so just under a quarter billion. And notably, Bitmain, which is a company that's really hot right in the crypto space, led the round, which was a surprise. And uh, prior investors include IDG, Tusk, uh, General Catalyst, and all of that. But um, what what does Circle do? <laughs> this is the, the, the key question, I think. So I think Circle does it facilitates Bitcoin trades largely. I think they used to deal with individuals. I think now they're helping big companies do move you know massive amounts of Bitcoin. What's also interesting, I think, tied into this fundraising is the company is going to be coming up with a new what's called a stable coin, which is basically uh, a new attempt by companies, including Circle and others, to create a coin that's sort of tied to the dollar. The idea being people are not using cryptocurrencies because they're so volatile. This way, you know, to keep them from being all over the map, we'll tie it to the dollar, uh, and you sort of expand and contract supply based on, well, you know, where it's trading. Yeah, so it's not an asset class, or trying to make it not an asset class. It's always going to be an asset class. But, but stablecoins will be a bridge between what is jokingly called fiat and the crypto world, right? I, you know, I'm I'm by no means an expert in the space, but you know, stablecoins have been popular over the last year. You have the basis coin, which is releasing, you know, base coin, which Lightspeed is a is an investor in and the tether um, as well? I think right. Yeah, yeah, there's there's a there's a company called Carbon Money which Haystack invested in. There's a company called Set Protocol which is doing an abstraction layer for baskets of currencies. I think it's kind of an intoxicating topic, both for developers and for investors because of this volatility and it's sort of got uh, an elegant framework to it, but also like the branding around it, and so people kind of gravitate towards it. It's still TBD as to how it's actually going to play out. Samil, can I ask, do you think, so when I first heard of Basis, which was, I guess, the first stable coin I'd heard of, I thought, oh, well, of course, this makes sense. But I was as I was researching the company because I was preparing to talk to the founders, I was like, oh, there are a lot of stable coins out there. So if there are so many stable coins, does that sort of render them useless? I mean, I, I guess the whole idea is, do we need a you know, sort of unified currency that people will use. I think one of the most exciting parts about the the crypto space generally is that developers will end up choosing. And so it will remain to be seen which ones they use, and maybe they use different ones for different 
purposes. We right. just don't know yet. Right, right. Think about how this is being framed right now in the media. So I just had the CNBC post pulled up, and like it, they they say in regard to the Circle transaction, Goldman Sachs backed startup Circle introducing a crypto version of the U.S. dollar. So most of that's kind of not right. Like it's not a crypto version of the U.S. dollar. It's a U.S. dollar pegged crypto potential. Like one, I don't think all the stable coins will work. You and I have both reported on basis, Connie, and we've seen the white paper and read through it, and the mechanics are intense and weird. Uh, honestly. So even if we get two that work, though, the world can support that. I mean, we have a number of reserve currencies in the globe because the global economy is enormous. So I don't think it's winner takes all. But I do think a lot of these are going to fail because the technical machinations to actually make this work is incredibly complex. And that's why Tether, which is notorious or not, depending on how you think about the company behind it, uh, has been the subject of so much controversy. One one other thing about uh, Circle, since, since we're talking about it from a VC's perspective, I don't know much about Circle, the company, but I always ask when I see these headlines. One is, okay, it says it raised hundred million or so in funding at whatever valuation. We don't know whether that's what denomination that investment is in, <laughs> because there are a lot of companies that hold currencies that they've mined or that they've speculated on and, and appreciated the wealth. We don't know what the tax transfer treatment of that is if it's coming from overseas, and we also we also know that some of those. Uh, investors may be bitmain in the sense aren't really price sensitive. It's more strategic investment. So when we read hundred million into a SaaS company here at a three billion valuation, we know how to mark that because we have comps to it. There are really no comps in the space, and so I would just caution readers against like reading too much into it. That well, is least, fascinating. Uh, I mean, it, it's, well, the one thing that we do know at least is one hundred ten million dollars is thirteen thousand. Sorry, twelve. Sorry, eleven thousand. Sorry, fifteen thousand bitcoins. No, no, no. Sorry, it's fourteen thousand. <laughs> Sorry, Sounds like 000. you need a stable coin. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's interesting, though, the uh, listeners probably also know Coinbase better, which is this digital cryptocurrency exchange. And now, for the moment, Circle is, has a higher valuation. I mean, Coinbase, if it were to raise money again, I'm sure would be you know probably at a very huge you know multiple to its current valuation, which was I think 1.6 billion last that year. That sounds but, right, but that you know, last year in crypto is like 48 years ago, right? right, right even exactly. in Silicon Valley terms. Um, yeah, Rob, Rob, we've already got Robinhood at 5.6 billion dollars post and as post crypto universe or something yeah, like that. Yeah, and we so. got we got Jack on stage at Consensus 2018 talking about how you know Bitcoin will be the reserve currency of the internet when it won't be. But Well, what's interesting is how much these companies are valued that are are you know not Bitcoin but are sort of facilitating transactions with Bitcoin. Well, right, it's the whole, you know, sell picks and shovels as opposed mm-hmm. to go mine for gold model. Mm-hmm. I mean, like this is where the money is to be made and this why Coinbase had I think it was something like 40% of its 2017 revenue in December because everyone was trading and they were just cleaning up. And that's when Coinbase, I think, went from market leader to everyone wishes they had exposure to it like, instantly. That that changed the entire game. Um, anyways, we, we can move on from Circle, but I mean, it's one of those things that I look at as a huge data point. Like, here's another one of these companies raising another huge block of money in some capacity, to Samuel's point. But I mean, the bets continue, even as Bitcoin is second 8,000. I do want to stress that point, though. We're, it, it's an overseas investor. It's a company. We're not really sure what denomination the currency is in. If this was a bunch of VCs that we all know that are local in the U.S. investing in this valuation, we'd probably be having a different discussion about it. I would be much more curious about revenue and margins as opposed to Bitmain taking some of its 2017 net profits and just being like, Boop, here yeah, you and, go. and that doesn't mean to take anything away from Bitmain or, or a Circle. Just it's 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 more opaque. Yeah, and strategic is the right word to describe it. Speaking um, of opaque, so New Enterprise Associates, which is one of the most well-known venture firms in the world, uh, long time running, lots of big investments, things like that, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, lots of money. Um, is planning to sell off a big chunk of its startup investments, uh, especially in response to 
no IPOs or few IPOs. Uh, it's looking to sell roughly a billion dollars in stake and stakes of around 20 companies or st- startups, uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, a bunch of other reports. And um, yeah, so I have not seen this happen before. I haven't either. I mean, secondary sales are nothing new. Sometimes you have an aging asset. Uh, the company needs to get some liquidity to employees, uh, and the investors, uh, the venture capitalists need to provide liquidity to what are called their limited partners. Um, But, yeah, I've never seen anything on this scale, and I'm not really sure what it means. I mean, um, I think this is a way to, I guess, appease NEA's Investors, of course, they have these sort of aging assets. My, my understanding from the journal story was these are sort of older companies that have yet to exit. So by sort of selling them into this new secondary fund, uh, they'll be sort of, you know, they can provide liquidity to the LPs and then start anew. But I'm not really sure what's... So is this a new set of LPs coming in to essentially acquire the risk that the old, fees, old LPs don't want anymore? I think it must be. Well, why would the old so? LPs recycle money into a new vehicle right, right, to right. buy out their preceding... No, I think well, it's probably... Well, I mean, new LPs. Yeah, if it's new LPs, right, right. it makes perfect sense. You get in there, you buy this, you get a 30% IRR over the next three years until they finally exit. The older LPs get liquidity because they're up 30x. Right? It makes sense. Um, I think we should ask the VC. Time I, to ask the VC. Yeah, actually, this is this is probably an area that Connie, with her, her wealth of coverage, knows better if she hasn't seen it before. I haven't seen anything like this before. Um, I would agree with Alex's interpretation that it would most likely be uh, a new set of LPs. Uh, I don't understand like the accounting rules of why they would do it. I think also NEA is probably one of a handful of funds that could actually do it because they're really like an oil tanker. They're like really an institutional fund that will always be there. Their LPs are super, super loyal. They've had uh, great results. Um, it's a great group of people. But yeah, I guess I guess the two headlines from it for me were one, only a handful of firms could actually pull this off. And two, um, it actually does... Sh- it's an interesting demonstration of how illiquid the environment is and how long it takes to to get uh, to get a company public. Like I think one of the more recent uh, public companies or exits I can't even remember was like you know it looks like ten, twelve years every single one. With a lot of these companies, is they just raise so much money over time that it makes them unattractive uh, acquisition candidates. You know, like these companies have probably been raising and raising and raising, and now they're like, who, you know, who wants to buy them for whatever their ostensible valuation is? You know, is. one of the things I've learned being inside a number of venture firms and being me- mentored by a number of different investors is when you see a venture firm have a string of IPOs and you go, why do they have a string of IPOs? They're going in early and coaching the founders very, very early and setting up the company to actually go on that path. And so when you have new investors or different investors or investors that lose a little more control upfront and uh, can take on more money, like Connie is mentioning, you have some of these adverse effects. How long did, how long was Groupon private again? 18 months before it went public? Oh, that was that was very fast. Yeah, right. and they, and they, those guys fast. cashed out even before it went public. Yeah. Do you remember that was a strange I was, one? Uh, I was th- that's when I was growing up in the Chicago tech scene. Was during the Groupon and right after the Groupon era. That was a really fun time to be in Chicago. <laughs> I <laughs> bet because all of a sudden, for the first time, there was all this tech money just blowing around like a hurricane, <laughs> and no one knew what to do with it. Just it was, free skydiving. <laughs> well, no, the running joke, and this is a bit of inside baseball, but it was like, what was the dumb thing that Groupon recently bought for their office? That was like a running shtick inside of Chicago because they just had so much cash flowing through their business, they were just doing silly things. But uh, to bring this back to NEA, according to biz journals, only 20 of their 300 active investments are privy to this $1 billion secondary. 
So this is not the majority of their investments, not the majority of their upside. And their last fund was $3.3 billion. So like, this isn't even on the scale of a new fund. So it, it almost feels, ironically to your tanker comment, small. But what's interesting here, um, in addition to just the fact that they're doing it, is how they'll value the companies. I mean, everyone's like, oh my gosh, this is going to be a conflict of interest. How are they going to sell this to another fund that they've created? Uh, and I don't know the answer to that is, other than maybe the other investors, they'll have to sort of go by their sort of accounting of so- the... Right, right before I came over to the office today, I was meeting with a VC who you know, um, but I'm not going to say their name because I wanted to talk about what we just talked about. Okay, uh, And they said the same thing. How can you possibly take someone from your firm, put them into this vehicle and have it be a reasonable um, thing? You should have some uh, a lot more external people be the, the key brains of this to make sure that it's fair. To make sure that these valuations make sense. Why not get some guys from Goldman or from JP Morgan, whatever, bring them in, let them run the math, and even maybe have it be set up adversarially. But I mean, you can't just take Billy from down the hallway and have him expect to act independently when he just changes off his zip codes, right? I'm sort of sitting here stunned. I, I don't really know what the rules are. Maybe it's rule breaking and therefore they'll write the rules as they go along. I have I have no idea. But it, but I mean again, also like when when a lot not all, but like when a lot of VCs mark up their investments, some of them market to market, some of them market to the last round and there's no standardization for it. Yeah. So my guess would be is like NEA is like one of the most stable like in the ground funds out there and probably their LP base has been very long term and very loyal and probably will say, hey, we trust you, you know, with some oversight to do the sober thing. That that would be my guess. I mean, so is this like an is this like an opportunity where there might be some recaps happening with those companies as well? You think so. I mean I I don't know but that's fascinating. That's, I think of it more operationally, like having been involved in some secondaries, what you have to do is you have to talk to the founders because they may not want that uh, kind of activity. You have to pay transfer fees, so it's not cheap, um, depending on the size of the transaction. And then other people may want liquidity at that moment. So if somebody's getting liquidity, it's this concept of like asynchronous liquidity. So it's kind of a problem around here. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how it'll trigger. Well, it's going to be fascinating to see. And if this goes well, I'm curious if we'll see more. Now, only a few firms, to your point, Samil, could do this, but there are two or three or four that we can probably name. And so if this goes well for NEA and IPOs don't accelerate more, because we have seen more IPOs thus far in 18 than in 17, 16, or 15, um, maybe we'll, this will become the new way to exit by just selling your stuff to a a former part of your firm Sounds using like someone a else's money. Scheme, doesn't well, I mean, so the, I mean, if PE and does setting this. Fire, money on fire in the process <laughs> because why not? Only if you get into that new lime round everyone's talking about. You know, then you can really have fun. We're with not going to talk about scooters. Oh, we're not talking about scooters. Oh, no. is that part? Oh, is that part of the show rules? I missed that. Meeting. Unless you want to go back to this week in Uber. We're I do not, not want to go back to this week in Uber. <laughs> that was the worst period for the show. I know. I know we're not going to talk about it, but I actually was sort of hoping we would. But I realized I'm a week too late. No, 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 no. Here's a question: Did you take a scooter here and Uber, or did you walk? Okay, I walked too. Dang it. I mean, you can take a scooter back to my office, though. I don't know. We'll see. Don't do that. All right. Um, um, back to real things that are not scooters. Pluralsight uh, went public today and started trading, uh, and it did very, very well. It priced above its range and was up like 30% today. Lindley, no, no, it was up an extremely satisfying 33.33%. Exactly. One th- oh, because it closed at, at it 20. Closed, it closed exactly at 20 price after pricing 15. 15, which the OCD me is like, this is amazing. If you're, <laughs> not, if you're not a math dork and you don't get why that matters, just realize that it feels very good on our end. It does feel very uh, good. So, Lindley, you just talked to the CEO, right? Uh, yes, I did. So, so what's going on? So uh, obviously this is a big exit for Utah. Um and that's it's a it's a startup scene that's traditionally known for having uh, very sales heavy, very services heavy. 
Uh, Pluralsight, uh, for those who don't know, it's this, uh, they sell into larger enterprises and offer software development courses. The idea being that I can find talent within my company that I don't have to sort of go out and headhunt or hire recruiters or all this other stuff. Maybe they're just missing like one or two skills, like uh, an AWS cert or something like that, right? Um, so, uh, why would they go public? Uh, they their numbers are relatively good. They brought in about 170 ish million in in 2017. It's up from 132 ish million. Uh, they're still losing a sizable amount of money. But what uh, Aaron told me was that they went public because they needed credibility um, as one element of it. Because being a public company, this offers you credibility. You can say like, "Why should I buy you?" Oh, look at our stock. It's up by like 35 percent. Like people like us. So there you go. Um, and as you're sort of trying to sell into larger and larger and larger, larger enterprises, you start needing those data points. You know, if I, it's different for me to sell into, um, I don't know, like a HR ADP or HR software or something like that versus going into like Boeing or Dow chemical (laughs) or some, like something that like is absolutely freaking massive with an employee workforce of like tens, 20, 30, 50,000 people. So, um, so it's, it's a thing. Um, and uh, it's a, I don't know, like, what do you, what do we think well, about one this? One interesting thing, I don't really know much about the company, but I saw that it had sort of uh, raised capital very late in its life, which mm-hmm. seems very sort of reminiscent of other Utah-based companies, Qualtrics, I think that mattress company, Purple, mm-hmm. uh, which is great. You know, if these companies sort of uh, can establish themselves before they have to, you know, they obviously don't have to give as much away of their companies to the VCs in that case, and there are other advantages. Yeah, they were founded back in 2004, Four. which is ages and ages and ages ago. I and think the um, first round was in 2013 or 2014 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, but so. their, their biggest round was their Series B in 2014, which valued them at exactly a billion dollars post-money, at least according to the data that I could find. And their IPO value, I think, was just over $2 billion. And I think they closed today at about $2.7 billion if you just use uh, – well, it depends on how you want to count shares in their S1. That's a, non, that's a share count non-inclusive of future options and an employee share pool. So if you want to really dig into that. But it's the, a less complex one that we should actually be using. Yes. Um, it's, a, it's fully diluted, blah, 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 It's blah, silly. Blah. So the, the kind of the simple valuation is like 2.7. So up dramatically from the 2014 valuation. But they did raise a small round, I think it was back in 16, that probably repriced the company. But given that it was like 30, 35 million against like, a, you know, probably 1.5 billion, I don't really care. So speaking of asking the VC, did they leave money on the table? My only comment would be going back as to like why, why, the comp- why a company like this would go public or in like – in the Salt Lake City area and the, their sort of um, cohort of companies. Definitely as a credibility, they can now do acquisitions if they need to, uh, probably let some of the employees like actually participate in the liquidity that's coming. Um, 14 years later. 14 years <laughs> later. That's a couple of years. And then, and then there's also been a little bit of a trend, and I think you'll see it, and your guest last week, Vili, actually wrote a great post on this years ago, like just massive consolidation in, in SaaS. And so, like, once you get price in the public market, then you can actually have another outcome after that and play that game as well. Yeah. I mean, like, AppDynamics is a good, good example of that and all this other stuff, right? Well, AppDynamics w- almost went IPO and then someone s- bought it. Yeah, picked yeah, yeah. it off. Yeah, yeah. But the other one was MuleSoft that went out. Mm-hmm. Yeah, both, both Lightspeed companies went out and then was public for a while and then was scooped up by Salesforce. But overall, this is sort of more good news for SaaS companies and probably more frustrating news for consumer companies, uh, like none of which we've seen this year. I mean, this is so preceding uh, plural site. Did I say that right? Yeah, yeah, DocuSign, yeah. Dropbox, Smartsheets, Aura. Well, Zora's file. But well, yeah, there was Spotify, but that was a oh, non-IPO right, right. PR. 
PO. No, that was right. a weird direct <laughs> listing. No, there's no thing. PO in it. Well, <laughs> but here's just just for fun. So the company, if you look at the Portal Sites um, quarterly results going back a couple of quarters, in the September 30th quarter, they lost about 33 million um, on a gap basis off of 43 million revenue. So it looked pretty expensive in terms of revenue growth. But then they brought that net loss down to 23 million in the most recent quarter off a higher revenue base. And so they do have something looking like a path to profitability out there. And I wonder if that's how that helped them because they raised their range from 10 to 12 to 12 to 14 and then priced at 15. So they had a pretty good pre-IPO run. Do we know who this sort of army of expert authors are? Who like is their staff that are teaching these online I think it's all the people that really get like Microsoft tools mm-hmm. and stuff. Like, okay. All those people that we don't actually talk to. Okay. So I, I, there's one other thing that I want to note uh, regarding the IPO and things like that. And this is it, it's kind of getting into the weeds a little bit. Um, but we talked about this relative to Dropbox because this was important, which was uh, talking a little bit about their gross margins. They report non-gap gross margin. And in uh, the three months ended March 31st in 2017, it was 74%. And the three months ended March 31st in 2018, it was 76%. Okay. So it's a small, small, but again, growing gross margin. And SaaS companies are like, that's their that's their thing. Is like they need to have a really, really strong gross margin in order to show that they're like actually a business and they can continue to grow. I, I think a lot of people around here would take 74 all, <laughs> every year, all day long. I love when people are like, we have 98% gross margins. And I'm like, you don't know how to calculate a gross margin. If you don't get that joke, you're Da-da. doing better than I am. Uh, but refuting Lindley's positive point, in the first three uh, months of 2018, they had negative $10 million in operating cash flow. And in the first three months of 2017, they had positive $5 million. So also on the Sasso meter, that's bad. Hmm. I don't know. The investors love that They're definitely going to well. burn through all $350 million. Oh, Probably. Fast, yeah. according to you, your mathematics. You probably have a lot of <laughs> investors who are not doing the kind of math Alex is doing right now. They're actually doing more puzzle piece um, work where they're kind of saying, you know, there's private equity groups like Vista that are hoovering up a lot of SaaS companies. Um, Microsoft, Salesforce, blah, 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 are being more acquisitive. And they see this fitting as a piece maybe into another pie. That's that that's cheating, though. That's just not doing the math. That just feels like wish thinking to me. Is that how everyone does it? <laughs> is this why I would be a terrible investor? That's why I'd be a terrible investor. Alex All would right. be a terrible investor. Speaking, uh, speaking of investors, the, the ones the, that put $300 million in WAG. Um, yes. Speaking of great deals that will totally pan out. Uh, Vision, I seeded WAG. <laughs> oh, dude. So you are like living the, the, the Vision Fund life. How many X up are you on that deal? Oh, God. Uh, like, is it over 100X? <laughs> I think so. That's annoying. <laughs> All right. So what we're what we're talking about is the SoftBank Vision Fund, which was a one hundred billion dollar private equity vehicle that acts like a very large rude VC. Which was it ever fully finished? <clears throat> it was like no, 98, no, 95 it's never been closed, billion. But this is the thing that everybody gets wrong about the Vision Fund. It doesn't really want to compete with the VCs. It wants to compete with Blackstone and KKR. So they are looking for like a minimum of twenty percent IRR, not, you know, substantially more than that. I mean, I think the dream is so Masayoshi Son, the head of SoftBank, had like very famously invested in Alibaba 18 years ago. I don't know, it was like you know 20 million, and then I think 58 million altogether. That now is worth like 130 billion. So that investment is like a 44 percent IRR, and they're like, so if we can get between 20 percent and 44 percent, we're doing fine. So that sounds easy, and so they can sort of splash out all this money and kind of drown out the VCs because they're telling their LPs that they don't have the same sort of uh, you know, bar to meet. 
Well, I just solved our, our problem about NEA. They should just provide the billion dollars and get a billion dollars of second secondary right there. <laughs> oh my gosh! Well, I, I mean, well, it's also like uh, I mean, when you talk to people, I mean, uh, we have a VC in the room, but when you talk to people in the in the VC industry, they're like, Ugh, like SoftBank. They're just gonna they just like come in and like here's all the money in the universe, but. They also seem totally fine partnering with people. Sure, as long deals. as they they partner with you and they don't fund your competitors. Yeah, I think them. I think VC as a monolith here um, can can lead us down the wrong path because you have VCs that are hundred million or less, hundred million to five hundred million to five hundred million over, and depending on where you sit, uh, you could view SoftBank very differently. I had a very top tier, very well known venture capitalist mention to me that he viewed SoftBank as the greatest threat to their IRR mm-hmm. because SoftBank could potentially cherry pick even their best deal and stop it from going public. I think if you're a smaller investor, like I run Haystack and actually SoftBank has followed on three three of the investments I made, it's a potential liquidity path if they're going to tender offer. So it's it's remains to be seen. What I will say across many funds and the people who are leading these larger venture capital funds, it went from a year ago of being like, oh hey, that's that's huge or what's that going to be to like affecting firms' strategies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and we're seeing firms raise more and more money. I just don't know. You know, what's interesting about the fact that they're talking about raising yet another one of these gigantic funds is uh, it takes a long time, obviously, to see results. So um, even with this Flipkart deal, which we talked about on the show last week, and which SoftBank has decided that it's not necessarily committing to do but that was so what they invested in um 2.5 billion in flipkart last year and that would have turned into 4 billion or yes yeah, so a 4 billion return or excuse me 4 billion now so like a 60% like uh, markup which is great but that's still how many of those do they need plus you take out like management fees etc cetera, etc cetera. they need 600 of those to make it work which is why they've it's only spent 45 billion of the first vision fund which is a little bit less than 100 billion to your and point most of that in uber as well uh, oh gosh, got me. F- what was the final Uber account? Like 18? A lot. I'm gonna. I'm making a fool of myself. I forget that number, but you're right. It was a large chunk into Uber, and they still have probably 50 left, theoretically, and they want to raise another, I presume, 100. I mean, I, I just they, I don't understand the mathematics. Alex, you might, you might not like this, but yeah. <laughs> there, there's an alternative uh, way to view what, what SoftBank is doing that sort of breaks the math, which is you have. Um, Economies, let's say in the Middle East, where they're they're literally the basis of their economy is shifting mm-hmm. co- completely rapidly, and so they're looking for exposure in places where they don't have exposure. Um, and then you have Massa and his group getting different government sovereign wealth funds around the world to kind of come in and like insulate the company. So, like let's say Uber has regulatory risk around the world, they now have not only corporate contacts like Apple, but also government contacts. Mm-hmm. And so part of this game that he's playing, one way to view the chessboard is more like risk and less like monopoly. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I mean, think about the biggest sovereign wealth funds out there. It's like, you know, Saudi Arabia, Norway, Qatar, UAE. Yeah, I know. That makes a lot of sense. Those are all I, some, oh. I don't know. I mean, I certainly understand that they want to put their money here. You know, it used to be that they would have to maybe settle for like a $50 million check into a huge company like uh, IVP. And now they can write, you know, a $2 billion check to Masayoshi Son. But I still don't know about that. I mean, is Uber going to take over the Middle yeah. East? I, I don't I'm, know. I'm not saying that like it's the right way to do it. It's one way of interpreting the moves. Um, it's TBD. But I think some of the LPs in there are less concerned about, oh, if I put in a million, a billion like Apple, I want to make sure I get $2 billion back. There's other motives, other distribution motives potentially on, on what they're doing. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Well, I'll just say this. As a person who really likes to cover IPOs and therefore I'm 
by definition, a fan of liquidity. I really hope they don't raise a second vision fund because it's just going to splash out and you know put I, off another host of I think two things for us to things. watch are when will Uber go public because that's always been a moving target and the company had obviously a huge hiccup and then this financing round. So when, when that goes, obviously that will be closely watched. And then the other one is Airbnb because I think people view that as a very defensible growing company in a large market. And they recently had, um, I guess, the CFO step down. Mm-hmm. And if I were SoftBank, I would love to have that in my portfolio. So <laughs> w- would that happen? Is that trying to happen? Are they going to go public? I think that will be very interesting to watch unfold. Those are great points. You know, one uh, another uh, offering that people are not paying enough attention to possibly, excuse me, is Didi. And SoftBank's a big investor in Didi. And Didi, according to Reuters at least, is thinking about going public as early as this year. But, but Lyft keeps leaking that they're thinking about going public. I'm curious if Didi is playing the same game just to scare Uber. Well, Didi is also like considerably larger than Lyft. Oh, by a factor and of Uber. five, probably. Yeah. Well, but wait, that might just it, be a... If it, it does go, it would be sort of an earlier, you know... Yeah, Sign, I mean, if you I can think. beat Uber to the public markets, that's going to be pretty tough for Uber because you're going to take away a lot of the money that wanted exposure to that asset class before Uber can come and collect it. I don't know. You know, it's interesting. Bill Gurley had said a long time ago, Bill Gurley being this famous VC who's very uh, tall, very tall, <laughs> early investor in Uber had said, you know, the problem with whoever goes first is everyone else is going to then cut their prices because they don't have to answer to public market shareholders, you know, basically bleed that company dry and then, you know. I think, Shift the gears I, yet again. I think that worked when they they could still lose infinite money. I don't think Uber can burn another four point five billion in a year. They're not gonna they're not gonna get away with another Uber China, I guess. No, 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 no. And they're they're out of the in, in, well, other markets too. So I don't. But, I, but I Uber's agree. hoping Didi goes first is what I'm saying. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, shall we? I'm just, to, I'm just giving Alex. I'm trying why to get, are you? Why, why are you to, hanging me out to, to dry? Anyway, sorry. Do you I was, want me to end it? Yeah, no. I, all right. I, well, no, thanks, I thanks actually, everybody for coming on Equity. It's been a blast. See y'all next week. Fuck Lindley. Uh, I was trying to make Alex uncomfortable. So. Yeah, it all totally right. worked. I was like, all right. toss, <laughs> toss. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Come back next week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening, and a big thank you to Matthew Lindley, Connie Loizos, our producer Christopher Gates, our executive producer Henry Pickovet, and we will see you all right here next week.